can get do right donut uh, chicken sandwiches. Oh, oh I never tried damn. those. I'm usually a pizza guy for like post call badness. Pizza like in the morning? What? What? It, yeah, dude. Anytime. Post call. Post call at home, not at work. Yeah. yeah. So I still, you know, yeah, post yeah, call. Yeah. You're still yeah. rounding, so you don't yeah. want to be nasty. Did you? Do you shower or do you just go right to bed? Ooh, that's a trick one. <laughs> trick one. Usually, I shower while I'm waiting for the pizza Maybe to get delivered, yeah. and then the beauty is to pass out right after you eat the pizza, yeah. no matter where the pizza is left, like yeah. on, you, on you, next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. That's amazing. Are we All right. recording right now? We, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hope that is included. So, welcome everybody to ChiefCast. Today we are going to do one of our review of the literature. we're reviewing li- the literature kind of for the past couple of weeks or months. We've done, been doing a lot of special episodes, uh, getting back to our routine episodes, and soon we'll have our in-training scores, right? Uh, they are coming hot off the press here pretty shortly. Pretty yeah. shortly. So then we'll resume our, our kind of in-training-based yeah. cases and, and, and whatnot. So welcome again. Maybe we should close that door and see if our acoustics are a little bit better. Yeah. Sorry, the studio is a little bit haphazard today. Yeah. There we go. This is the best studio I've seen. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I can put up the soundproofing as well. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Did you yeah. see? Yeah. 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 Okay. Can we yeah. tell the producer to turn up the mics a little bit? Hey, b- uh, Bill, yeah. Coffee around here, please. Excellent. <laughs> Round of beers, please. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, that one. Thanks. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So what what articles do we want to talk about today? I got I got. I got some good ideas. All right. Yeah, we have some exciting stuff. Uh, everything from uh, vaping, some new community-acquired pneumonia guidelines, uh, the performance of the T2 bacteria panel Ooh, for diagnosing fancy. bloodstream infections. You don't even have to wait for a culture. That sounds what? like a trademarked thing. Are we gonna? Are we giving royalties to someone? T2B. Like I like it. Uh, uh, we're gonna talk about some heart failure and some vaping. Gotcha. So let's start with vaping. I think the context here is important. Um, many of you have probably seen in the in the press just the overall kind of politics and history behind mm-hmm. this, which is, you know, we started <coughs> developing these these e-cigs about 10 years ago. And, you know, it has been marketed primarily towards people that are um, nicotine, you know, uh, users and cigarette users and stuff. And maybe you can quit and transition to this other product. But like many things uh kids have taken kind of uh uh this has become a very popular thing for children in school particularly of teenage uh in their teenage years but throughout i think from 12 or 13 on up until you know their mid-60s uh people have been taking up vaping quite aggressively um but it's now we're dealing with kind of a tip of the iceberg type of problem um there's a lot of patients that come to the hospital in a variety of states in Illinois as well. A handful of patients have died even um, with what seems to be a pneumonitis combined with kind of chronic inflammatory lung disease of some sort. Um, so there's an article that was published actually describing the cases from Illinois. Uh, the first author is Dr. Layden, who is part of our ID faculty. She's also, she directs the, the Department of Public Health, and she works here and trained here as well, by the way. Uh, she's an ID person, but as part of her public health function functions, she has been investigating with her colleagues in 
other surrounding states, all of these illnesses in, you know, in, in patients getting admitted for, for e-cigarette use. Um, so for all of us, you know, we'll refer you to the article, but also wanted to share kind of the most important thing, which is how to identify clinically these cases. Uh, so guys, how, how do these patients look? Yeah, so um, of the of the 53 patients that they looked at in this uh, paper, which is from uh, the cases in Illinois and Wisconsin, 83% um, of them were male, and the mean age was 19 years old. So it's kind of a young male person, which makes sense that that these people uh, are probably the most common e-cigarette users. Um, and so the the symptoms they present with are also a little bit what much makes sense expect. 98% have respiratory symptoms. 81% uh, have GI symptoms, which maybe you didn't, wouldn't expect. And then all of them have some sort of constitutional symptoms. Um, and then the, the really the main thing, which, um, which is the defining part of this, this pneumonitis type picture, is bilateral infiltrates on chest imaging. Um, and so uh, the kind of the course of, of these patients um, can vary a little bit. Most of them that they describe are, were hospitalized, and about a third of them were uh, were intubated. Um, so it's uh, it's a pretty severe uh, case, but also there are milder cases where uh, these patients aren't getting intubated. Well, I think what's scary about this is, you know, as I mentioned, it's been around 10 years since this technology was introduced probably five years since it's been mass consumed and mass, uh, um, you know, it, mass consumed and, and uh, uh, what's that word, uh, advertised, mass mm -hmm. advertised. Um, so in just a span of five years, we are seeing hundreds of cases nationwide of people with lungs that look like they're 70-year-old smokers when in fact they are teenagers. And from a public health standpoint, this is a red, red flag uh, in the sense that a lot of the this is probably just, you know, tip of the iceberg with regards to cases. And some of these patients are also dying. So it's important for you guys to be able to recognize. Uh, always ask about the vaping products and their history. Um, in general, this new phenomenon has a name now, and this name is... Uh, uh, brand new. It's not even mentioned in the article that we are referencing. It's called e-volley or e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. So it's an acute lung injury, um, chronic lung injury as well for that matter. But typically the acute pneumonia that you see is an acute lung injury, a pneumonitis type picture. And the proposed uh, diagnostic criteria for it um, basically include some of the things that um, we were mentioning here. So obviously a history of using or dabbing in the previous 90 days, um, lung opacities on chest radiograph or CT, and exclusion. And this is where you know, I've seen probably two cases or three cases, and my involvement is usually in excluding infectious causes. So you want to exclude you know, influenza, respiratory viruses, uh, and other conditions like Legionella and uh, HIV, et cetera. So things that would, would cause uh, uh, bilateral ground glass opacities. Um, and once you rule out those things, that's where you kind of make the clinical diagnosis. But it usually involves heavy use um, of, of vaping products. Another kind of random tidbit is 
initially we started seeing these cases in people that were using marijuana. Um, so the marijuana products are not are usually from the street. Um, but most recently, we've realized that you could see this with anybody. So just the regular nicotine products that you can buy in places. The CDC and the FDA have now essentially uh, uh, cracked down on this, and I think they've they've kind of are moving towards a ban of of, of selling the, these e-cigarettes. Um, so pretty terrible and pretty interesting. I think it's. It's terrible from a public health standpoint yeah, that, it really is. you know, we brought this and mass consumed this and we're now realizing the side effects. Um, so <laughs> it's unfortunate. Cool. Um, anyways, keep your eye out. If you see anybody with an acute lung injury, particularly on somebody who shouldn't have it, yeah. or somebody with chronic lung disease because they're a smoker and they've been vaping, to, you know, in order to try to quit, then always think of... of acute lung injury from e-cigs uh, or vaping or e-bali. Yeah, and I think the... E-bali could also be a yogurt company, right? Yes, <laughs> like e-bali. Is that a peach e-bali you got there? <laughs> Anyways. I think the hard decision would be if you have someone who previously was a, a cigarette smoker and is now smoking e-cigarettes as a form of stopping tobacco use. Um, that certainly is a question in my mind of what, what you tell these patients. And I think the FDA recently said that they should at this time continue using e-cigarettes, but um, I think having a risk-benefit discussion with your patients is really important because I think that's the population mm -hmm. that we'll be seeing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I think it's, it is a difficult question. Uh, personally, I think the right answer would be to try to halt things. I've read articles in uh, the BBC and in The Guardian and in The New York Times with different approaches. I, I think the British uh, societies and scientists are concerned about what you just said, which is we are moving away from something that has helped people quit. Um, and, you know, we know how bad tobacco uh, and cigarettes are. So they don't want a total ban, uh, at least for now, um, in Great Britain. Um, but here in the United States, we're concerned that this really was rolled out without much uh, much understanding about the acute or chronic consequences. And I think based on the severity of disease, regardless of whether some of these cases were marijuana or not, uh, I think we have to be much more concerned. Yeah. Um, so definitely dangerous. Cool. Great article. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, we have a really cool article uh, looking at um, diagnosing bloodstream infections using a T2 bacteria panel, which is essentially a... Uh, DNA test that amplifies the microbial cell-associated DNA um, using polymerase reactions to uh, get you a specific bacteria species within about three hours of blood draw. Well, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, I think this is a, a brand new technology and, frankly, a revolution in infectious disease diagnostics. The background to this article is just the overall history of microbiology diagnostics. Uh, it is interesting that, you know, today, and as of a couple of years ago, maybe these things have changed, but in general, we've been doing the same thing that we've been doing for about 100 years. The difference is we've been doing it in a more efficient way. So how does a typical blood culture, you know, when you order a blood culture, what happens? You know, the nurse goes to the bedside. They use a commercial bottle that is already pre-made uh, that mixes and preserves the blood and that goes into a pre-made specific oven 
you know, there's different companies for this. Backtech is one of them. But essentially, these blood culture bottles, those thick, big tubes that you see, they are meant to measure uh, biochemical activity. So a positive blood culture essentially means that in that oven, something grew and, you know, it detected uh, biochemical activity, a.k.a. life. So then that pops up, and that's when you get that red that says positive blood culture. The tech then takes that blood culture bottle and smears it and, you know, puts it in a plate and makes it grow a little bit more. And then that, once it grows enough that you can take a look at it in the microscope, they do a gram stain and they tell you if it's gram positive or gram negative. And then you have to wait for it to grow enough to get susceptibilities. So that process can take two days or yeah. three days sometimes. Yeah, in this study, the uh, uh, species identification took about... 71.7 hours, and the blood culture positivity was about 38 hours, so a little bit over a day and a half, to even get a positive blood culture. So where does this PCR come in in that process, and how does it change it? Yeah, so the like we mentioned, the gold standard for diagnosing bloodstream infections has always been blood cultures, which really the sensitivity ranges anywhere from 10 to 50%. Um, so these uh, uh, DNA uh, amplification panels are able to detect the bacteria DNA and uh, give you positive blood culture or positive bacterial identification within about three hours, uh, which is amazing. That's so you, awesome. not only do you know that the bacteria, uh, that there's bacteremia, but you have species identification uh, within three hours. And um, in the past, you know, with the blood cultures, if we're concerned about sepsis or severe infection, we typically will empirically treat with uh, broader antibiotics than, than what is ultimately needed. And with this quick turnaround time, uh, we are able to potentially uh, tailor our therapy much quicker, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, a real positive. Um, this is actually, great, yeah. And this is exactly, this actually, we have this technology here. So it's a great article to select because it validates what we are doing too. The, uh, and I think just the, the, um, uh, benefit of avoiding empiric antibiotics is really important. Uh, there was a study of meta-analysis of sepsis treatment studies that showed empirical antibiotic therapy was inappropriate in about 46.5% of patients, and the mortality rate in these patients was actually higher than those among receiving appropriate therapy. Wow. So. Yeah, and at UIC, it's probably been a year and a half since we introduced a, um, not a T2-branded uh, machine, but something called Verigene, okay. and it's the same concept. The bottle, the bottle turns positive at 12 or 16 hours. You take that bottle and you do a PCR test in addition to gram stain and all these other things. So what does that mean? Uh, when you guys get those blood cultures and it says no MRSA gene detected or no MEC-A, that's the PCR in mm -hmm. the blood. It's telling you no ESBL gene, so you can drop that carbapenem or you know, or you can drop that vancomycin. Um, so that's perfect. So they found that that. You know, they kind of validated this quite well in yeah. the study. Yeah, so I think that the, you know, you want to know how sensitive and specific this is. And uh, the uh, per patient sensitivity and specificity would range from 90% uh, and 90%, sorry, it was 90% sensitive and also 90% specific. Uh, and then the negative predictive value was about 99.7%. Uh, which That's is, awesome. Which is really pretty good. good. Yeah. These PCR technologies have been revolutionizing ID diagnostics. The other one is, say, BioFire, where you can now test for a million things in the stool, right? Um, there is one drawback, however, compared to cultures, which is you're not getting an MIC. 
Um, so, for mm. example, you might find an ESBL-producing pathogen, but you can't truly 100% know what the right antibiotic is, but it helps guide you much earlier than just cultures alone. So you can't move away from cultures, unfortunately, but you can get a, a better and, you know, a really good clue on what it is by finding the genes in the blood. Um, so it's, it's a, I think it's a, a great advancement in how we can diagnose these things. Yeah, it's really cool. Very That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. Speaking of diagnostics, um, a lot of uh, new guidelines, and one of them that is very important that we wanted to talk to you guys about is the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. So about two weeks ago, the ID Society of America and the American Thoracic Society published an updated community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. This is an update to their 2007 guidelines. Um, let's go, th you know, we just want you guys to know the skinny. So tell us a little bit about what the major updates are. So a uh, couple big things. Um, a lot of times it's a little unclear when you're, when you're doing culturing things, whether that's sputum or blood. So um, they added a new category, which we'll talk about in a second, of, of uh, a way to categorize something as severe community-acquired pneumonia. Hmm. Uh, and so when you're doing sputum and blood cultures with pneumonia, it's going to be an inpatient uh, and a severe community-acquired pneumonia. So that's a, that's kind of the first time. Um, then, if you're worried about MRSA or Pseudomonas, you do sputum and blood cultures because you, you're trying to get uh, get a, a idea of of what's there. And then, if if they recently were in the hospital or got IV antibiotics, then you want to uh, try to culture. Interesting. So they don't want you to culture 100% everybody. Correct. Uh, specifically outpatients, uh, but also inpatients with moderate or not right. as severe pneumonias. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, in general, what has what has changed with regards to this is really uh, they are trying to focus uh, our management towards you know ceftriaxone plus a macrolide. And if somebody is really severe, then you have less room for error, and you want to treat more broadly. Also, if somebody has risk factors for Pseudomonas or MRSA, then you want to also treat them a little bit more broadly. So they're no longer calling things healthcare-associated, mm -hmm. mainly because the risk factors for that are a little bit more um, nuanced. So strong risk factors are pre previous hospitalization you know, and previous antibiotic use. But dialysis and all these other things, not so much. I think if somebody is really sick or has a prior culture for for pseudomonas or MRSA um, or a strong risk factor like um, recent admission, then you would want to treat with, you know, piperacillin or cefepime and so forth. Um, and for those cases, always get the sputum culture. Why not get a sputum culture on every random, moderate or mild pneumonia that you admit? Because the sensitivity of that test is so low that they're saying, you know what, probably doesn't matter. When does it matter? If it's severe or if you've started Zosin. If you start Zosin, then you want to get that culture to make sure that you can de-escalate. What about urine testing? Uh, so urine testing, again, really is only useful in these severe cases. So uh, strep pneumo urine testing should be done if the, if the case is severe, if it's a severe pneumonia. Legionella, again, should also be done if it's severe, but also if the person uh, has any travel history suggestive of Legionella or if there's a regional outbreak. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Perfect. So once again, the IDSA panel, part of this is that the IDSA panel recognized that we are over-treating patients with 
very broad antihistamonal beta-lactams like piperacillin or cefepime and combination therapy with vancomycin. This puts the patients at risk for renal failure and you know a variety of other complications. So they no longer want to assume that dialysis patients or people from healthcare facilities like nursing homes are automatically are colonized. Pseudomonas pneumonia and MRSA pneumonias are very rare, and they only want empiric therapy on patients with severe disease, recent admission within 90 days, and prior cultures positive for Pseudomonas or MRSA. Those are the ones that you want to test, and those are the ones that you want to spend more money on urine antigen testing and all the other stuff. Most of your pneumonias are going to do well. So you're saying we really shouldn't just be doing the good old Vanxosin for every pneumonia walking through on the 7 East. But that makes only sense. after 7 p.m. But then we have to think about antibiotics. But. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. What else is new? Uh, just a, a quick reminder to only test for the flu when it's flu season. So um, the July uh, testing for the influenza so is, is, yeah, probably not super useful. What about procalcitonin? Yeah. You know, so procal, there's been a lot of hype about procal lately, but the IDSA has pretty strongly come out and with this new set of community-acquired guidelines has suggested that Procal is actually no longer recommended. Uh, despite previous studies, the IDSA panel really was not confident that the cutoffs for negative procalcitonin are safe. Um, and many cases can start with a negative procal and then subsequently end up being a pneumonia. So uh, the really it's, it's difficult to assess how to use it and we should be diagnosing these patients clinically and based on uh, their chest x-ray and their yeah. uh, if they're febrile and how they look. Um, rather than relying on this test. Yep, here's a direct quote. Several studies have demonstrated that the duration of antibiotic therapy can be reduced in patients with CAP with procalcitonin-guided therapy pathways and serial procalcitonin measurement compared to conventional care. But in most cases, the average length of treatment was greatly in excess of current U.S. standards of practice, as well as recommendations of these current guidelines. Concern has also been raised that procalcitonin levels may not be elevated when there is concurrent viral and bacterial infection or with important pathogens such as Legionella and mycoplasma. Serial procalcitonin measurement is therefore likely to be useful primarily in settings where average length of stay is longer than five to seven days. In general, they're not confident that you are you know, ruling out safely these patients. They're not confident that you're gonna follow guidelines because of the procalcitonin. As procalcitonin became more and more available, researchers have realized that people, you know, when a procalcitonin is ordered, sometimes patients, you know, they basically treat longer. So let's say you get a procal on day four on a guy that's doing fine and it's elevated, then people can continue to treat. So it's one of those things that does more harm than good. And where we really want it to work, the panel wasn't confident that it 100% works, which is identifying the difference between a viral and a bacterial pneumonia. Yeah, and I think it just gets back to uh, a lot of times we need to look at the patient and not rely on the, this lab, a lab test to tell us how to, how to manage. Excellent. Um, not a lot changed with our antibiotics, right? So yeah. they still want a beta-lactam and something for atypical. So mm-hmm. ceftriaxone and azithro is fine. Um, if somebody is really sick and you think has MRSA risk factors or a known MRSA culture in a respiratory sample, then of course adding bank. And same story with pseudomonas. The golden rule is if you started anti-pseudomonal or anti-staph therapy, always test 
and de-escalate within 48 hours if there is no evidence. So a negative sputum sample on somebody who's getting better, you should not treat that patient with vanxosin for five to seven days. If there is no evidence of, of MDROs and the patient's clinically improving, then you're fine. If the patient's not clinically improving, then you, should, you need to pursue further testing and BAL and a billion other okay. things. But in general, fine. If you want to start vanxosin, do it, but don't keep it. Always test to, in order to be able to safely um, de-escalate. Last but not least, uh, they talked a little bit about aspiration pneumonia. Uh, there was a study that we talked about in the chief cast, you know, not a great study, uh, but, you know, comparing people with, quote, aspiration events and whether they received antibiotics or not. It was a retrospective study and it showed no difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, aspiration pneumonias are typically chemical, uh, you know, acute lung injury. Um, Interestingly, all pneumonias are aspiration. So everything is aspiration and nothing is aspiration is kind of what they say. No longer recommends treatment with anaerobic coverage for acute aspiration events. So say your patient has a pneumonia. Are we 100% confident to say that this patient who just aspirated doesn't have a bacterial infection? That's hard to assess. Um, should you treat that patient? Maybe. I think the bottom line is you don't have to treat with anaerobic coverage because it's unlikely that an, a slow and dumb anaerobic bacteria is going to cause an acute decompensation. Yeah. Now, for acute pneumonitis, either don't start the antibiotics or stop it if the patient gets better. So figuring out if something was an aspiration pneumonitis is harder on day one than it is on day three. If on day three the patient completely is fine and improved, then maybe you don't need the antibiotics at all. So it, it's not saying don't treat it. It's saying you probably don't need to. You certainly don't need to treat it with an anaerobic drug. Okay. So you're so essentially we're just treating these if we think the patient has pneumonia, treat yeah. it like pneumonia right. without anaerobic coverage. Because an anaerobic, true anaerobic pneumonia is a chronic insidious process okay. that I always have it on my differential when I see tuberculosis or other conditions. It requires risk factors for chronic aspiration like seizures, altered ventation, or poor dentition, a high burden of anaerobic bacteria, and the slow and chronic process of anaerobic necrotizing lung infection. That's not going to happen in like 12 hours of, of, hey, this guy puked and, you know, now he has an infiltrate and a fever. That's probably not anaerobic, if infectious at all. Perfect. Last but not least, just one for kind of caveat for outpatient. They did change... Um, their recommendations for macrolides. They no longer want macrolide monotherapy. Okay. So that Z-pack for pneumonia, not so much. They do like amoxicillin a lot, and so do I. Um, they want you to treat with amoxicillin uh, most patients and amoxicillin plus a Z-pack uh, for people who have more comorbidities. Do they give any recommendation on length of therapy? Yes, absolutely. So uh, length of set therapy in general, five days. Okay, you excellent. Know? Um, five to seven days, uh, just remember, you can always de-escalate on day two. Okay. If the patient doesn't have any, you know, drug-resistant organisms, then you can de-escalate to, to non-antisodomonal stuff. But also you can transition to PO once the patient is comfortable and, and clinically improving and able to tolerate oral therapy. Um, there was actually, actually another study that they cited and uh, I was going to share with you guys too, but they were just they, they quantified the amount of excess antibiotics that people get, particularly on discharge. You know, we give these patients, you don't want to give them 10 days. And it, all of that is excess risk, excess C. diff, and excess exposure to antibiotics too. So I think those are the take-home points. Um, awesome. Procalcitonin is out. Um, you know, HCAP is out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, treat based on 
risk factors and severity. If somebody's really sick, then it's hard to be wrong. So you don't want to not cover for MRSA if, if, if it's a possibility. But no matter what you do, always culture if you're using broad spectrum of the patient's really sick and always de-escalate once you don't have evidence of MDROs and once the patient is doing better. Perfect. Cool. <clears throat> Perfect. I think going along those uh, lines of antibiotic stewardship, yes. we have a quick uh, in-the-news update. Talk to me. So, uh, you know, I think we all know that uh, we shouldn't be oh, wait, getting... Oh, our peers are here. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, thanks, yeah. Bill. Yeah, yeah thank let's, you. Let's <laughs> shotgun these guys. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 I think we all know that we shouldn't be getting uh, urine analysis and urine cultures on asymptomatic patients uh, unless they are uh, pregnant or going for a urologic procedure. Um, but it's nice to see that the New York Times recently, uh, in the lay news, put out a nice article uh, encouraging doctors and patients to uh, avoid getting urine cultures. Uh, and again, just uh, it, urine cultures in asymptomatic patients. And uh, it's just nice to see that this is getting out to the general public because I know I've had a few times where uh, they talk about in this article where family members are requesting urine cultures and for their elderly patients or elderly family members and things like that. And I think it's just a nice uh, article that outlines um, why we shouldn't be doing this and how it just increases risk for antibiotic uh, risks such as C. diff and um, antibiotic resistance. Perfect. Uh, so text this to your patients when they're so, asking for antibiotics. Yeah, you could, uh, you know, I think this is a nice article if you want to give it to patients who are requesting, you know, urine cultures and things like that. So stewardship of testing is an important patient safety and I think in vogue in infection prevention and in infectious diseases. Uh, you know, whether it's C. difficile stewardship of testing or urine culture stewardship of testing, this article highlights that we are over-culturing people. The culture of culturing is a problem. Why? It's a bad culture. Yeah. <laughs> we, and if you find something, you will treat it. Also, if you looked for something inappropriately, and by that I mean if you ordered a test in the wrong context, chances are you're going to react to it as well. Yeah, flu in July. Exactly. Well, at least that one's going to be negative. <laughs> but a, a positive urine culture in the wrong setting will most likely receive antibiotics. Yep. There's a bunch of other articles and a project that we did um, on urine cultures where we review patients with Foley catheters. So even Foley catheters, you know, are the urine cultures are very, very insensitive or in, uh, nonspecific, I should say. We, you know, a catheter gets colonized, so a positive urine culture may not matter. Uh, a catheter can cause inflammation, so a positive UA may not matter. And this is a very old guideline, and you know I didn't hear for it until recently. Um, the ID Society of America and the Society of Critical Care Medicine do not recommend that people use routine urine cultures on fully catheterized patients unless you know that are febrile, unless they have you know uh, uh, neutropenia or they're about to get a urologic procedure, period. And that's a measure of, of how insensitive the test is. It's like getting a chest x-ray on somebody with a piece of metal in front of them. doesn't mean much. Um, this particular guideline is the, the recently uh, updated asymptomatic bacteriuria guideline, where they basically said, don't test anybody unless they're pregnant or about to get a urologic procedure. Because um, that positive urine is not going to mean much. Yeah. Excellent. That's great. All right. Colin, what do you got? Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about... Uh, that was a lot of ID. Well, ID. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Uh, let's talk about some heart failure. So uh, 
everyone's favorite new class medication, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Got it. Uh, yeah, so exciting. Uh, there was a study. What's of, it called? What's it called? This one's called Depag. <laughs> Let me try again. Let me try again. Dapagliflozin. Dapagliflozin. You can pronounce it whatever, you, however you prefer. So it's one of the flozen. It's one of the flozens. And basically, um, they're, as they have studied these, uh, this class of medications. Still didn't tell us what it's called. I just told you it's called Dapagliflozin. Oh, with the medicine. I thought oh, you the title of the okay. Article. I can tell you the title of the article too. That too. Yeah. Uh, Dapagliflozin in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. So, um, as these these medications have been studied, we've seen that they uh, reduce the risk of heart failure. That has only been in patients with diabetes so far. So uh, it was kind of a, you know, not really meant to be studied specifically for heart failure, and it was just kind of this cool thing that they found about the cardiac effects of both this and some of the other diabetes medications. So this study was published about a month ago uh, in the New England Journal, and uh, essentially they studied it specifically in patients with heart failure, Irregardless, uh, sorry, regardless of, of uh, type 2 diabetes status. Um, and so basically, they needed to have a reduced ejection fraction, less than uh, 40%. Um, they needed to have class 2 or above heart failure. And then they randomized almost 5,000 patients to dapagliflozin uh, or placebo, um, in addition to kind of all of the other normal uh, heart failure medications. So their outcome they looked at was a composite of uh, worsening heart failure, which was was um, for this a hospitalization or kind of an urgent visit requiring um, IV diuretic or cardiovascular death. So um, a little bit of a broad outcome, but um, but pretty kind of clinically significant things. And so basically they found that uh, in these patients with um, about 40% of them ended up having diabetes. So a good 60% did not have diabetes. Uh, the dapagliflozin reduced uh, that primary outcome um, with a hazard ratio of 0.74 uh, compared to the placebo group, which was um, which was fairly significant. So um, essentially, that that's showing that these patients, um, even the and they kind of had subgroup analysis looking at both diabetes and non-diabetes, and it was uh, a similar effect in in uh, regardless of whether the patients had diabetes. Hmm. So it's kind of cool that this medication that was designed for uh, diabetes and works by increasing urinary uh, excretion of glucose, um, but it's essentially a diuretic in a way. So that's kind of one of the proposed mechanisms for how this works. Wait, wait, wait. So it's good for your sugars and your heart? It's good for everything. Wow. Yeah. And And your kidneys, actually. And your kidneys, too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's actually a lot of, um, it's a little unclear, but there's a lot of other Possible mechanisms that this improves uh, keeps you improves frozen. Yeah, yeah, it keeps you frozen. So um, this is kind of cool. It's uh, it's potentially going to be part of now the uh, the heart failure uh, yeah. regimen that that we give. So it'll kind of be interesting to see how this, this starts uh, to get used. I think just picking off that, you know, you always worry about side effects with medications or adverse events. Um, this may. Uh, uh, ruin the surprise for some people doing OPM, but the journal club that we're doing an OPM this around is about uh, SGLT2s and if they increase risk for UTIs or severe sepsis, pyelonephritis. And compared to other second-line diabetic agents, it does not seem like they do, which is reassuring. Fascinating. Now, I was looking up the brand name because dapagliflozin is a handful, is a mouthful. Um, fancy, Farxiga, Forksiga, and 
what's the other uh, uh, what's the other name? Z- Zig Duo XR. Oh yeah, I can't. Oh wow, can't that's a combination yeah. of Dapable Flows and Metformin. I can't also, wait to get my this check. Thing. So rarely use of uh, SGL2 drug, including dapagliflozin, is associated with yeah. flesh in your perineum. What's that called, what? Dr. Manalo? Uh, Fournier, of course. Of course. Well, what's up with that? It's like, hey, sir, it's going to improve your heart condition and your diabetes, but it may blow up your perennial area. Scary. In rare, in rare situations. In situ- rare situations, yes. your penis might fall off. <laughs> Okay, okay. Yeah, definitely tell your patients that, and they will never take this drug or listen to you again. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's pretty rare. No, it's pretty cool, though. Um, and so we'll kind of see long-term how these medications uh, look, both these and the, Interesting. the GLP-1. This side effect, including increased colonization in your urine, urinary tract infections, and candidiasis, is because of the amount of sugar that you pee out. Yeah. So, you know, you might increase the amount of sugar in your perennial area, and subsequently an infection that blows up your perineal yeah. region. So, certainly side effects to all the drugs we've prescribed to. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. Well, I think with that we conclude our review of the literature for now. Yeah. 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 Good Thanks review. Everybody. Awesome.